0: i uh-huh. uh-huh. everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing The Storyteller from Jim Henson's The Storyteller. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, John Dorowski. Welcome back, John. Thank you. We're going to be talking about three different episodes from this series— Hans, My Hedgehog was written by Steve Mangella and directed by Steve Barron, and it originally aired on January 31st, 1987. A Story Short was written by Anthony Mangella and directed by Charles Sturridge, and it originally aired on January 22nd, 1988. And The Soldier and Death was written by Anthony Mangella again, and directed by Jim Henson, and it aired on April 28th, 1989. The series starred John Hurt as the storyteller, and Brian Henson would perform the muppetry and voice for the storyteller's dog. Uh, each of these episodes has kind of a frame story where the storyteller sitting at his fire and introduces the story he's gonna be telling and his talking dog interacts with him occasionally during the episode it'll jump back into the storyteller and it wraps up with the storyteller and the dog always as well and the storyteller not infrequently shows up in the episodes themselves too like in the stories that he's telling uh and this was a request from patron tim so thank you tim for requesting uh this particular episode This is a series that I've been aware of as a fan of Jim Henson, but I had never actually seen doing some research. turns out that's not surprising. It it has been hard at times to track down where and when you could watch uh, these episodes of Jim Henson's
1: The Storyteller.
0: But John, had you seen these before?
1: Some of them. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I remember stuff from when it was originally broadcast. um, Because... Jim Henson, that's one our parents would definitely approve of us watching. But I do remember you were never sure when it was going to be on, uh, jumped around schedule. Mm-hmm. And so uh, re watching these episodes definitely brought back memories. And there, were, there was one I remembered from what, well, I remembered bits and pieces of from watching The Soldier and Death. I like yeah. I just have memories of that from watching it as a child. And then um, re watching okay. some of these, like, you know, the sense of memories come back of, oh, yeah, that that scene or that shot, like mm-hmm. somehow imprinted on my mind as a child. See, interesting for me, I didn't remember any of this. Uh,
0: but the Soldier and Death episode, I remembered a different adaptation of that story from seeing like a film projector version of this in elementary school, you know, with the whipping mm. thing at the end. <laughs> Uh, back when they, they would wheel yeah. out that and you knew it was going to be a great day. And I remember laughing so hard at that film adaptation of uh, The Soldier and Death. And I have tried at various points to Google what that story could be because I didn't remember the name of it. All I remembered was the guy saying, wickety-whack, get in my sack. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to trap things magically into, into a sack. And I also remembered shots of him handing a beggar a cheese sandwich. Uh, it, like those moments are mm-hmm. in like ingrained in my head and I could never be able to track it down. And watching this story in Jim Henson's, i am like, Oh, this is it. This is, it? I'm going to be able to find it. And I've spent like 10 minutes Googling, trying to track it down now that I have a title. And I still haven't been able to find that version that I remember, yeah. but I loved this version uh, that I saw. I just so also have a different version of the story in my head.
1: The one thing uh, has stuck with me through the years is from the soldier in death. And that was the image. Uh, and we'll get to this in this summary, but it was looking through a glass of water. And seeing death, and that puppet of death has stuck in my mind, but framed in the glass. Mm-hmm. So, like that I shot is, is one that has stuck with me through my life.
0: That that um, there is some of the, I mean, it's not this isn't Jim Henson's Muppets, right? This
1: no, this is a creature, creature Workshop shop. making
0: creatures in a lot of these. Yeah, and some of these definitely are like Uncanny Valley, which we often talk about with like computer animation, but that baby mm-hmm. hedgehog. I could see that being an image that latches into people's mind. We, we'll talk about oh. that a little more after uh, we we do the summary. Yeah, but there's, there's a there's a, a, human a different image. hedgehog hybrid.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's a different image that stuck with me. Like when I saw it, it was like I have like oh I have such a memory of that shot and towards yeah. the end of the story, which we'll we'll discuss with uh, when we get to the discussion.
0: Okay, but a little bit of trivia. We've already mentioned that uh, you know th- this was hard to find to, to, mm-hmm. to literally to watch. And, um,
1: well, okay, so it was hard to find, but then I remember. Um, at some point the DVDs came out, and coming across the time was like, I remember this. I want to buy it. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: four episodes aired as special presentations on NBC, like across almost two years, I think. uh, Where it'd be like randomly in January, like here's one Mm -hmm. episode, and you know then October here's another episode, (laughs) and then five of these episodes became part of the Jim Henson Hour, which was a short-lived NBC um hour long series that was from what I've read up about it usually divided in half where like the back half might be like a half hour Muppet story, the front half might be a tour of the Jim Henson workshop explaining what Muppets are.
1: Or Except for there was one episode which I I also have a memory of this. Mm-hmm. Dog City. Yes. Which was the noir story using dog puppets, which became yeah, a short lived animated series.
0: Which I actually quite enjoyed that animated series. But yes, yes Dog like, City.
1: I, and I'm trying like Looking back, I was like I'm trying to remember like, do I know this from the cartoon, or do I actually remember the original? And is it all mixed up?
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a uh, dog, Private Eye, uh, doing film noir voiceover.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh,
0: such a great concept. Uh, yeah, but like dog, dog, Dog City would be a half, and then the back half. might no, be No, that was an hour. Of
1: this- I did look oh, that okay. one up. It wasn't that wasn't a full hour.
0: But but uh, then I, I guess uh, five of these episodes of the storyteller were aired as back halves or or at least half of the jim henson hour now they had produced i think it's 12 episodes i'm trying to see how many like i'm looking here it was more than they actually aired on there because there's uh at least one or two episodes never aired in the united states until hbo then aired the entire run of the storyteller in like the mid or late 90s and i at that point i remember i was reading in my daily newspaper like their their tv column and i remember the columnist talking about HBO is finally going to show all of Jim Henson's storyteller. And that columnist was really excited about it because this is quality work uh, in these. Um, And it was kind of a shame that it's had such a scattered life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was also somehow, despite that strange (laughs) relationship (laughs) with NBC and releasing those, there was also a four episode second series called The Storyteller Greek Myths, which uh, Michael Gambon stepped in as the storyteller. But I had the same talk uh <laughs> and so there's there's lots of oddness uh about these uh and even uh like i was looking up within the trivia it mentioned like jim henson at first was going to do a full um muppet slash animatronic version of the storyteller but then they showed how with like makeup and prosthetics they could make a human look almost muppet like and he's like okay let's do that and so uh you know jim H- uh hurts uh storyteller has you know, a very exaggerated ears and nose. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't look like John Hurt. Yeah. And they're doing other stuff to, uh, you know, make him fit in with the world of Muppets. <laughs> they're building around him rather than the traditional, just like there's a human actor in here and no one acknowledged it. Um, Some other trivia about this. Jim Henson's daughter, Lisa had taken a class in folklore at Harvard and talking about that class and the stories that she uh was was uh studying and, and the art of storytelling that she studied in folklore she and jim henson then conceptualized this story, this series together um and there th- it, there's another great quote that i uh read from jim henson about this uh apparently this is some copy that's written uh i don't know where the original quote f- is from but uh, according to the muppet wiki uh website that had this up uh it, this is just taken from uh the dvd liner uh but this is a quote from jim henson about this he says when i was a child my mother's family would gather at my grandmother's house 15 or 20 people would be there sitting around the dinner table and my grandparents would have stories to tell usually stories from their childhood they would tell a tale and somebody would try to top it i've always felt that these childhood experiences were my introduction to humor of my family sitting around the dinner table making each other laugh as children we live in a world of imagination of fantasy and for some of us that world of make-believe continues into adulthood Certainly, I've lived my life through imagination. But the world of imagination is there for all of us. A sense of play or pretending of wonder, it's there with us as we live as i've grown older i've been attracted to fairy tales and folk tales and the rich quality of these stories grown richer as they have gone through generations and generations of telling and retelling they're important for the flow of information and energy and entertainment from the storyteller to his listeners as the storyteller calls upon them to meet him halfway to create the story in their own minds it is our responsibility to keep telling these tales to tell them in a way that they uh in a way that they teach and entertain and give meaning to our lives this is not merely an obligation it's something we must do because we love doing it I just thought that was a great little ode to storytelling from one of my favorite storytellers, Jim Henson.
1: Yeah, and you know that you could tell that, yeah, that really informed his whole philosophy for his whole life, not just this project. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, well, before we move on to the summary of these episodes, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading and listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon, like uh, patron. Uh, Tim, who is uh, the supporter for this particular episode. Uh, we If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to uh, patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Uh, John, you have written summaries for these episodes. And I will also just note... Um, I don't know uh, the actual <laughs> order that these episodes <laughs> aired. Like uh, <laughs> if you look up Jim Henson's the storyteller, every website I looked at had a different order for the episodes <laughs> uh, as to, as to, uh, you know, what's considered episode one, episode two, episode three. We're just going to do it. Like you're talking about Hans, my hedgehog, then a story short, and then the soldier in death.
1: Yes. All right. So Hans, my hedgehog based on an old German legend. A farmer's wife wanted a child, and she would try anything to have one. She didn't care how it looked, which is a dangerous thing to wish. Soon she gave birth to a child named Hans that looked like a hedgehog, with a pointed nose and quills as soft as feathers. But while the wife loved the child, the farmer grew to hate him. As Hans grew up, he, he learned he was strange, and learned he was ugly, and learned to be sad. One day, after his father tossed Hans the gravel hog from the table, to eat outside, Hans asks for a saddle to ride his rooster and some livestock so he can go away to where he can't hurt anyone and no one can hurt him. After Hans left, his mother mother's heart broke and she died. Twenty years later, a king got lost in a forest until he came across an extraordinary palace. Hans welcomed the king and gave him a meal. The next day, the king awoke beneath a tree near his own castle. He offers the grovel hog a reward saying, name anything. And Hans says, give me the first thing to greet you. When you arrive in your kingdom, I will collect my reward in a year and a day. And the first thing to greet the king is his daughter. A year and a day later, an army of animals arrive led by the gravel hog. The king and the princess keep their promise and the princess marries Hans. That night, the princess sees Hans remove his coat of quills and become a man who went out among his animals. In the morning, the ugly gravelhog hog was back. The next night, the princess falls asleep on the coat of quills. When Hans returns, he, explains that, he uh, uh, explains that he's been cursed and asks if she would prefer the man or the beast. She responds, I have a husband, and he is what he is. Hans then explains that uh, if she will not speak of this for one more night, the enchantment will be broken. The queen, seeing her daughter happy, says that she has spoken with a wise woman in the village who advises that the only way to break the curse is uh, throwing the gravel hog's coat into the fire. That night, the thought seizes upon the princess who burns the coat of quills. This traps the gravel hog in his beast form and he leaves. The princess has a pair of iron shoes made and, slipping them on, sets off to wander the world in search of her husband. She wears out three pairs of iron shoes in her wanderings until one day she came across a farmhouse and saw a bird transform into the gravel hog. She claims him as her husband and embraces him, not letting go until the enchantment is broken and he turns back into a human. And so the princess who could not keep her promise won back her husband by looking without hope for finding and holding on for dear life. A story short from an early Celtic folktale. The storyteller recounts a time when he was a beggar and tricked a castle chef chef into making stone soup, wherein you boil a stone and add ingredients until it tastes like soup. As punishment for tricking the cook, the king requires the storyteller to tell him a story every night for a year, and for every story he would earn a coin. But if the storyteller fails, he will be handed over to the cook and the boiling oil. On the last day, the storyteller can't think of a story. Meeting a former beggar with whom he had shared the stone soup, The storyteller gambles away his fortune, his wife, and finally, his very self. He is first transformed into a hare and then into a flea. The beggar then goes to the cook and wages the gold against a meal that, of three toothpicks in a row, he can blow away only the middle one and leave the other two. The beggar then places his fingers on the two outer toothpicks and blows away the middle one. But when the cook tries this, he blows away his own fingers. The beggar then says he can move one ear and not the other which he does with his hand. When the cook tries, his ear falls off. The beggar then presents himself to the king and performs other tricks, throwing one end of a rope into the air where it stays, then throwing a glowing orb up until it disappears. When the prince demands the glowing ball, the beggar turns the rope into a rope ladder so the prince can retrieve it himself. But then the rope drops, with the prince still above, somewhere. The ball drops, but no prince. So they drag the beggar to the cook and his boiling oil. When the beggar treats the boiling oil like a bath, the cook tests it, but rather than being burned, his finger and ears are restored. Then the prince comes out of the oil while the beggar disappears. The storyteller wakes up, all of this having been a dream. While the storyteller has no story, he can recount his dream, and it was the best story the castle had ever heard. The Soldier and Death, an early Russian folktale After twenty years of war and a thousand miles from anywhere, a soldier travels towards home with nothing but a shilling and three stale biscuits. The soldier gives one biscuit to a musician beggar, and suddenly the soldier can whistle like never before. He gives the second biscuit to a drummer, and now he can dance like never before. And though he was hungry, he gives his last biscuit to another beggar, who in return gives the soldier a deck of cards, saying, And may they never lose for you, as well as a sack with which one can order anything inside. The next day, the, be- the soldier orders geese inside the sack, which he then trades for a meal and a bed in an inn. Three days later, the soldier travels to the ruins of czar's palace, where the devils now play their cards. An army once tried to deal with the devils, but in the morning there was nothing but left but shadows. The soldier challenges the devils to a game of cards, and despite the devils' cheatings, he wins their 40 barrels of gold. When the devils threaten to eat him, he traps them in his sack. After beating them up, the soldier releases them, the devils, but takes the foot of one with the promise that the devil will serve him. Rewarded by the Tsar, the soldier now lives in a castle and has a family, but his son falls ill with a fever that none can cure. The soldier calls on the devil and promises that if the devil can cure his son, he shall have his foot back. The devil uses a clear glass of water to show that death is at the foot of the bed. This means the child will recover. It is when death is at the head of the bed that one needs to worry. The devil instructs the soldier to sprinkle water from the glass onto the boy, who immediately recovers. The soldier returns the devil's foot and, in exchange for the glass of water, releases the devil from his service. The soldier then travels the world as a miracle man, healing the sick when he can with his magic glass of water. One day, the soldier receives a message from that the old czar is ill and is summoned to the palace, but death is at the head of the czar's bed. So the soldier offers his own life in exchange, and the sword is healed. The soldier then returns to his family, but on his deathbed, he traps death in his sack. The soldier took the sack to to the thickest forest and hung it from the highest tree. No one died from that day on, and the soldier returned home happy. But one day he looked out at his courtyard to see poor souls waiting for death's release, and the soldier could not bear their sorrow. So the soldier released death back into the world. But death now had fear of the soldier and would not come for him. While others aged and died, the soldier lived on and on. The old soldier travels to hell to surrender himself, but as he is carrying his sack, the devils refuse him entry. The soldier declares he won't leave until they give him a map to heaven, a way in, and two hundred souls. At heaven's gate, the two hundred souls are allowed in, but but not the soldier. He gives the sack to one of the soul, asking them to call for him once he they are inside. But there is no memory in heaven. After waiting a long time, an inch from heaven, the soldier returns to earth, where he wanders still. The dog asks the story to, about the storyteller's sack, which he says is just a sack. But when the storyteller tosses it aside, a devil escapes from it. The end.
0: Thank you, John, for those summaries. Um, I, I do want to comment about the style. Um, think much more Jim Henson's like The Labyrinth or Dark Crystal.
1: Yeah. So the this, Muppets. This was um like you said, a lot more prosthetic work on people than your traditional Muppetry, though that still existed in it as well. Um it was some early use of CGI. And I get the sense that and you talked about this with Dark Crystal that Jim Henson was kind of frustrated by the level of technology, that his vision was bigger than technology would allow. Mm -hmm. I I think the same thing was happening here. I could sense some frustration of, like, we're trying this new new things with computer graphics and some robotics and stuff, and it's just not the level I think Henson wanted.
0: Yeah. And there's some interesting uh, kind of like... Maybe pastiche style of storytelling, where you never know, like from one scene to the next, what's going to be presented. Is it going to be shadow play, uh, you know, mm-hmm. across the background? Is it going to be, um, you know, fully seen human uh, puppet kind of interactions? Is, is like they're they're trying very different visual techniques from moment to moment within the story and from episode to episode too.
1: Yeah, and they're doing things with camera angles and, um, like close-ups to. Partly, I, I think partly it might have been budget stuff, but also like trying to like you have one castle set. How do you show it differently every time?
0: Mm-hmm. And it makes a very interesting like visual mix uh, for this. But I can also see why maybe the struggle to find an audience for NBC mm-hmm. um, because it, it does in many ways feel like visually experimental and at times very dark. Uh, yeah, for... it's not,
1: not quite children's television it's not quite family viewing where yeah, everyone's like, going um, get something out of it.
0: I mentioned I could definitely see like a child who watched Haunts My Hedgehog, which won all sorts of awards, by the way, when it came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like both the puppet for the baby human hedgehog hybrid <laughs> situation and then also the costume for the adult hedgehog. Like it is just strikingly bizarre uh, mm-hmm. to look at and some something about it is Kind of uncomfortable, uh, to see, and I could see like that baby being like, um, you, you know, I never ending story where there's like the the wolf with the red eyes that's an image that's haunted me my entire life since well, my childhood.
1: Like I said, the image of death in the soldier and mm-hmm. death, yep. that's yeah, yeah, like, these are the kind of, of images death.
0: that if you're like a six year old watching this, that they're just gonna embed into your brain. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think.
1: Well, with Hounds My Hedgehog, I watching it again, there was a scene at the end where she hugs him, um, to. And he's doing this, and while she's holding him, she he's going through these transformations. And there's this sh- shot where you have these animated wings come out of his back. And mm-hmm. uh, I saw like, and something struck me of like, I remember that so well. That image of those w- animated wings on the back of a person.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you've mentioned death in uh, the soldier and death, but also I think those those devils, uh, the yeah, devils the devils was a,
1: the other thing that I remembered well. I was like, I remember, I didn't remember all the beats of the story. Was like, I remember there was a sack. I remember there's a devil. And then the, like when there was a shot of a plant, like he was using it as a planter. So there's the plant growing out of the devil's foot. I was like, uh-huh. I remember that so well for some reason.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it's very evocative imagery, but also it might not be able to find a family audience. Uh, because, yeah. Or a
1: wide audience. Mm-hmm.
0: And similarly, like the, uh, in a story short, when they throw the storyteller into the boiling oil, <laughs> like, I think that would be, uh, a traumatizing scene yes he pops up but they leave it for a little bit of a man being thrown into a cauldron of oil uh mm-hmm. before he pops up and treats it like a hot tub basically yeah um, so you definitely get the release that comes but i think that initial moment it'd be like what is going on in the story <laughs> for for a kid um do you have a favorite well, of these
1: surprising things? since the you know these are uh you know, at the, at the point these were made, these, you know, these are fairy tales and folk tales. These are supposed to be children's stories. They're like, no, these are going back to the original roots where they weren't just for children. They were a little scary. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah, there's definitely an edge, which I mean, I've seen Jim Henson's mm-hmm. Labyrinth. I saw that when I was a kid and I definitely remember parts of that for its bizarreness of like the, mm-hmm. the puppets like taking out their eyes and passing them around and things like that, um, which is, you know, not a a playful Muppet version of Jim Henson. And I I like this vein of Jim Henson and Jim Henson storytelling. I ideally wish we'd been able to see it continue, um, you know, with him guiding it and uh, pushing technology uh, to, to kind of capture his vision. Uh, Like this is one of the last projects that he did before he died uh, is, is uh, you know, these, these storyteller um,
1: adaptations. Like he became so famous for the Muppets and, and we know, and some of our audience certainly, us, you know, so we remember things like Labyrinth, Dark Crystal, Fraggle Rock. But, like, get past that. And he did so much work that doesn't, like, doesn't mean it, not just in popular consci- consciousness, it's hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um You know, like, he won an Oscar for a short film uh, that I doubt anyone has seen in 30 years. Yeah. And um, so, like... Talking about it as a storyteller, you know, Jim Henson was a storyteller. <laughs> That's what he did all his life was tell all these types of stories. And he was obviously fascinated with different types of stories and what techniques he could use to tell these stories. What potential there was that even if he couldn't achieve it, that he could see what this was supposed to be.
0: Yeah. And I, um, just uh, with some academic projects I've been doing, I've been um, doing some work on George Lucas and um, the ways that he saw the shape of the future. And where technology would be and like tried to wrench kind of his productions into that when it wasn't ready, like the technology just didn't exist and he tried to force it to exist. And, um, and I think Jim Henson was the same way. Like he he, he saw what was coming.
1: On Disney plus there's a documentary series light and magic about the history of industrial light and magic. And it's just that of Lucas saying, okay, well this stuff doesn't exist. Let's make it. And finding the people who could do that and, as you know, he's uh, he's looking at computer animation in the early 80s where computers could barely do anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I was uh, he invented something that is used in every blockbuster now, and it's the the uh, crowd replication to mm-hmm. fill in extras. Instead of having thousands of extras, you film, you know, 20, 50, 100 people uh, and you you multiply that digitally he invented that for the young Indiana Jones movies because he needed crowd shots of extras in period garb and they couldn't afford to actually dress that many people Mm. as like, let's make it happen. And that's the first place it happened. And since then, like you, if if there's a crowd scene, odds are it is the kind of technology that he was developing in the early nineties for young Indiana Jones.
1: Or well, like in the documentary, he talks about the, a shot from, or they talk about a shot from empire strikes back where, it's one of the opening scenes where a Tauntaun's running along a ridge and it basically went to Dust for a sa- Shadow and said, all right, I have this shot, you know, these landscape shots from uh, wherever they were filming Hoth, Norway, I think. Yeah. Uh, can you put a Tauntaun running along the ridge? And they were like, no, they like that's not possible. But then he like, but since he has, like they thought about it, like the next stage said, okay, maybe we could try this and do it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he can see what he wants, and he just has to ask the right people, and someone will find an answer.
0: Well, even I know, um I still remember seeing this when I was a kid in a making of Star Wars, I think an extra VHS that was in, uh, uh you know, the original Star Wars trilogy VHS came with a fourth VHS of the making of, and I watched yeah. that as much as I watched the movies. Um I still remember with Tontons when they were doing the stop motion, they he wasn't happy and 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 also the animators like this is collaborative i'm not trying to give all george lucas all the credit, but they weren't happy that when you do stop motion you don't get any motion blur uh you know because every every photo is just you know just that one photo and if you stop film individually as someone's running you get a little bit of blur on the edge of the images uh from from their motion and so they developed a rig that would shake the tauntaun as they were taking the the you know the, the photograph uh, so that you would get a little bit of blur in every still image um of, of the tauntaun to try and make it look more like when you film a creature running uh, or a human running uh you know and it was all stop motion but they were trying to get what happens when you film real life anyway where were we jim henson Okay yeah, back to jim, yeah, jim henson. henson's a storyteller uh I, I I really wish George Lucas and Jim Henson w- worked together more. I just feel like they would have <laughs> no, like,
1: I think Labyrinth was a collaborative project. Mm-hmm.
0: And and I think uh was Jim Henson involved in Willow in any way? I, f- I feel like he ah, I maybe I'm
1: probably something there. Yeah. Um and of course you know, of course they had Yoda. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that that yeah. was a little more Frank Oz. But, it you know, feels they, like they, they, worked they together. should have worked <laughs> together more. <laughs> yeah, like they could have really made some magic if yeah. they came together.
0: All right. Of these three episodes of The Storyteller, do you have a favorite? Hans My Hedgehog,
1: a story short, or The Soldier in Death? Well, like I said, The Soldier in Death is the one that stuck with me. But watching these three, I think Hans My Hedgehog, probably because it has a happy ending. That ending for Soldier in Death is bleak. Yes, <laughs> um and you know hans on and, my hedgehog and is, <laughs> yeah. is
0: like unexpectedly meta yeah like maybe mail.
1: is the storyteller this soldier because yeah. it opens with him saying again uh you know like saying you know it's the soldier coming in for war and the transitions and this is his symbol of his, ref, uh, of his regiment and the storyteller points to his coat and then we see the uh symbol on the soldier's coat
0: yeah and at the very end of the episode where he throws his sack one yeah. of the devils pops out of it
1: yeah um but hans on my hedgehog you know happy ending uh a variation of the beauty and the beast story um, i mean when you get into f- folktale and fairy tale studies they have a uh, very specific classification for everything um called the ATU index um and so i'm i'm not sure whether hows my Hedgehog would be classified as i wouldn't be surprised if it was under beauty and the beast stories
0: Wait, hold on. I need more information about this ATU index.
1: Okay, so I took a fairy tale class um, in part of my graduate work and uh, so we learned about the so ATU is it's each letter stands for someone's name and they were the ones who started this index uh, looking at trying to collect stories from all over the world and seeing the similarities between them. So uh, kind of
0: like the in in, in the school of uh, story analysis of Joseph Campbell. Uh,
1: yeah. And exploring like um, you know, the that yeah, yeah. brings up anthropological stories. Yeah. Yeah. And brings up anthropological interests of how these stories get transmitted across cultures, across continents, because you have Cinderella stories in China and Europe that are distinct, um, but they probably but they probably had a common root. Uh, there's actually a, a manga I read a fan translation of The Legendary Musings of Professor Munakata, which is a great title. And it's about an anthropologist who does Japanese folklore, but he's trying to trace, um, he's also trying to trace the migration of iron technology, of how you forge swords, and how that was brought from the Middle East to Japan, and some of the stories that might have been brought with him that you could see oh, there's this Japanese story, but it has a lot of similarities to these ancient Greek ones.
0: Huh. I, I, I'm fascinated by this.
1: Yeah. It's, a, it's like whoever wrote this had to have at least a consultant. If not, they were a folklore expert themselves in writing right. these stories. Um, And so, yeah, like the ATU index is one of the resources where you look at it and say, okay, all these stories – from around the world or, you know, maybe just around Europe, but you know, how are they being transmitted? Um where they might be they be coming from because, you know, fairy tales don't have to come from an oral tradition. They mm-hmm. can can come from a print tradition. Well but like
0: Hans Christian Andersen, right? Hans
1: Christian Andersen. actually uh, early but going back to the Renaissance, um, we know some of these stories were well, were first written then. So it's like did they just come from the Lurie tradition or was the coming from oral so like the brothers Grimm, we do have an oral tradition there but something like beauty and the beast we know when it was first written and it was written in a literary style so was it someone's imagination in the renaissance or was it coming putting together folklore bits mm. um so yeah you know, that's getting into you know fairytale folk story. study this is the stu- sort of stuff they do <laughs>
0: Well that's what uh you know Jim Henson's daughter was taking a folklore class exactly. and that's what inspired this the series so it makes perfect sense and, that like this well, is firing a lot of your expertise in that area.
1: Well it's also like uh so this story short has stone soup. You mm-hmm. know we were I remember that from a picture book.
0: Oh yeah, the, I I have, I've, I have multiple picture books of that that I've read to my yeah, kids.
1: And, but I never thought about oh where does this come from and And this episode where they're combining several legends, you know, it says it's an old Irish legend. So it's like, is stone soup an old Irish legend or is they just putting that on to another thing to make the story, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's also how it's transmitted. And so, you know, this is, you
0: know, combining and, and borrowing elements from one
1: story or another. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I now wonder is Jim Henson's storyteller listed in the ATU index for these story, for these representations of the stories, because they're another iteration of them.
0: Well, I was looking up this ATU index and it's interesting because it does start with, um, uh, it was, it says it was originally composed in German by a Finnish folklorist in, uh, anti Arn, Uh, but it looks like they were doing that work in like 1910. Then it gets translated in English in, uh, by, by Thompson. A, two versions one in 1928 one in 1961 and then it's expanded by german folklorist in 2004 so this is like an intergenerational index <laughs> well yeah <laughs> i mean it, it,
1: yeah. it has to be an ongoing project it's just yeah. who, who's uh-huh. in charge of it
0: uh-huh now yeah i gotta look up more about this atu index um so
1: for you well, uh, oh uh, well i will mention so with the atu index every story type is numbered mm. and then you have and so it's um a formula study breaking down the elements of the story. And so it's like, does this variation have these elements or how many elements of what we consider a snow white story? Does it have? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, So it breaks it down into subcategories.
0: I like, I it's, it's something that's always tricky to like kind of uh, like retroactively analyze and label. When I talk about with American literature um, and we're and we're like defining the eras and it's like okay this is a transcendentalist era or this is the modernist era it's always like this is a frayed edge you can't really <laughs> just look back and label that everything published in here belongs to this and it had no influence on what came uh, after or was building on what came before like the, the m- aspects of these movements exist before and go long after and also there is stuff being published within these eras that does not fit what we're labeling yeah. as like so, the large trend of the era
1: now joseph apply a formulas lens to that and say all right, here are the elements of a transcendentalist story. Mm-hmm. That like these are the 15 elements that you could find in a transcendentalist and story. And give a numerical value
0: to each one of those elements yeah. present. And then
1: saying, all right, this story has one, three, five, six, twelve, 12 and 15.
0: <laughs> okay. So, uh, I'm yeah. going to be looking up in, more into this. Uh anyway, you uh going back to these specific stories though, you said Hans my hedgehog is your favorite. Yes. It is it, I will say it does have uh the happy ending that you identify, but it's also really tragic along the way mm-hmm. <laughs> um you know the sadness of uh the the woman who's desperate for a child the what comes across as abusive unpleasantness of her husband um a, both towards the child and towards her uh <laughs> and uh the rejection that uh hans receives so there's a lot of heartbreak uh, in it a heartbreak yeah uh but then it does have the the happy ending and i think my favorite character in the piece is uh the
1: hedgehog's wife uh in the end oh yeah uh she Um, goes through well this is one of the folktale patterns of the rule of three so she has to go through three pairs of iron shoes before she finds him Mm -hmm. yeah there's lots of threes in these stories yeah well that's (laughs) that's one of the things about folk tales and fairy tales is the rule of three Uh uh-huh um,
0: and I think she—I guess, like, if you were to identify a character with an arc, it's her, right? Um, like we 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 don't get a but so much personality from Hans uh, in it.
1: You get more from the performance than from the story itself.
0: Yes, and again, like, uh, visually stunning. Uh, in some ways, haunting. Maybe yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the visuals that you get for this human hedgehog in there and that's something that i that i really like i i think i i have not done much thinking about this but i think there's a a, an important place for the grotesque in children's uh literature or or children's stories oh absolutely yeah um and and this i think grotesque is a good way to describe some of what we get in these jim henson storyteller Mm -hmm. tales um for me uh i i think there was the like nostalgia hit of this elementary school film that I've been trying to recapture (laughs) for decades in seeing the soldier in death. Uh, but a story short, I just was pleased by a lot of the surprises. Uh, and like, it's, um, recently I had my students watch the film, big fish, uh, Tim Burton film from, It feels very strange to say this, like 20 years ago. (laughs) It doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but in that there's a moment where like the stories that his dad tales his dad tells tall tales and the stories like start to fall apart like the logic of it there's no consistency to it and someone says well that's the way of stories like they get mixed up and that's fine (laughs) like you can't be nitpicky about storytelling that well that there's no like internal logical consistency in the kind of like oral tradition that his dad is doing of like telling tall tales uh and the story short reminded me of that aspect of big fish where it's like this is just kind of like madness of what is happening from one moment to the next yeah uh and i kind of love it (laughs) that there's like it doesn't it's just bizarre for the sake of bizarreness and like well what you must feel like a kid sitting there saying well what happens next and a dad or a mom like just making up a next weird thing and it doesn't matter if it builds logically off of what came before it's just well this is the next part of the story
1: yeah i think that uh ties into looking at the storyteller himself as a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly this but I think storytellers in general are kind of trickster figures yes that um, I mean there's... it feels like the uh, the Shakespearean fool or a bard right
0: you know mm-hmm. one of those kinds
1: of uh, types for a storyteller they're wise but silly um, they tell these uh, yeah really ridiculous stories that might not might or might not have logic but usually have some lesson in them if you're willing to look long, long enough at it Mm-hmm. And also the playfulness of language that is essential to a storyteller. A storyteller can't speak in a normal way when they're telling the story. Uh, they can't just say, oh, this happened and that happened. It has to have a certain flourish or um, floweriness to it. Uh, and, you know, repeating phrases with variation uh, to, ha- to create a rhythm to the story. Mm hmm. Well, not just a rhythm to the story, but like a rhythm to the sentences, to the telling of the story itself.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. And I think a story short, because it centers the storyteller so much, I think it's mm-hmm. about the act of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and I I mean, this whole series feels like a love letter to storytelling and the tradition of storytelling. Uh, but something about the story short just really centered all of that for me in a way that I,
1: I truly enjoyed watching that one. Yeah. And... And then you put William Hurt in there as the storyteller and great voice for storytelling, first off.
0: Oh, yeah. Um,
1: and, but then yeah. Like, he, you, he, does, like, he doesn't just sit there and, and recite these lines. He's bringing a performance. Right. He's moving around the room. And then in the story short, he actually gets to interact with the story itself.
0: I think I may have said William Hurt at one point and embedded oh, it's that John naming. Hurt. Sorry. It's John Hurt. I think I may have I, spoken and said that earlier as well. Uh, yes.
1: Uh, sometimes you get the hurts mixed up.
0: Yes. This is John Hurt. Yes, uh, <laughs> John Hurt.
1: The war doctor from uh-huh. Doctor Who. Uh,
0: and you, like you said, such a great voice for the, the voiceovers and um, Jim Henson seems to enjoy putting old men and dogs <laughs> t- yes. together. Um, this it, is go. It, it, he does it in Fraggle Rock. Um, uh, for for the human element of Fraggle Rock, right? The the Muppet mm-hmm.
1: dog uh, and
0: a human. And uh,
1: at the end of A Muppet
0: Family Christmas, isn't Jim Henson with that dog hanging out in the kitchen and looking on?
1: I have not seen that enough to say.
0: Oh, I think it is. Uh, and I think there's something charming well, about
1: it. My understanding is that the Muppet that Jim Henson most identified with was Ralph. Yes, and I've, that's I, I've heard that too. Part of why you don't get Ralph much anymore is that was so tied to Jim Henson that no one else has actually been able to take that one over.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an interesting part of um, the Muppets and and Sesame street as well. Like how uh, tied these, these, you know, these, these Muppets, these foam (laughs) felt (laughs) creations become to singular performers uh, that are aligned
1: with them. No. And what's really weird is sometimes, you know, when they, um, you know, someone else is behind it and you can tell it's not quite, like Kermit the Frog that you know. Yeah. It's like it's not oh, yeah. this isn't quite the Kermit I remember from my youth.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I think we're on to our third major Kermit. Uh and Yeah. Um I th- there's definitely differing opinions. I I mean I don't think anyone holds the opinion any opinion other than that Jim Henson's the best Kermit. Uh, that <laughs> I, seems I would hope not. Inarguable. <laughs> but but uh, of the other two I think there's some debate that goes back and forth.
1: <laughs> yeah, and but you could so uh, like oh the mannerisms not quite there the voice isn't is exactly the same. And sometimes it's like he's not acting the same way. Like this is a different sensibility of from the person behind him who uh you know like sometimes you know, have uh, you know Kermit will go on a show to do an interview and he has to be spontaneous. And it's like that's not quite how uh Kermit should be characterized.
0: Yeah. Um or, or like sometimes there's the moments where like uh the same uppeteer always does uh a certain uh, Muppets, but then those two Muppets have to interact and it's like, okay, well they're going to go dub in the voice later for like Oscar the Grouch and, and Big Bird talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carol Spinney can't be Muppeteering both of them. Sometimes the movements feel a little off. <laughs> for, I, I'm yeah. pretty sure it's usually well, Carol Spinney in the Big Bird costume and, and someone else doing the, the work for Oscar.
1: And let us just applaud all the Muppeteers for the hard work they do. So And to understand how hard they work, hold your arm above your head. Now do that for hours on end.
0: Yeah, it's similar for, uh, um, uh, like the boom mic operator. It's like, no, you, you really do. You, you need to appreciate what boom mic operators are doing. <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> all day like, long. There
1: is, there is a workout involved with this.
0: Uh, um, let's see. Uh, so we talked a little bit about Soldier and Death. Uh, I will say that one had some of the most. Uh, striking uh creations for the creatures, like the the way they do yeah, death and striking and the, visuals. And the, the devils uh, yeah. are amazing, and then also um some of the the shots that they cho- they chose for like um the soldier wandering alone uh, at the end, or or like being rejected from heaven. It's like oh, that's just
1: really interesting composition in some of these. Yeah. Um. Yeah, what about uh, Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I, I think I mentioned some of the. Shot composition you know, of trying to keep it interesting and different for every episode. Mm-hmm.
0: What about trying to find a theme for these stories? Because they're folk tales and they're often meant to, uh, you know, teach lessons. Do you think there's a message in each of these? Um,
1: yeah. So with
0: Hans uh, My Hedgehog, it's like you said, it's a Beauty and the Beast. It's you know, finding beauty that's not, you know, skin deep but then also the payoff that, Hey,
1: <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. oh beauty's not skin deep, but you don't mind it on the surface level either in the end. Right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there, there's always that aspect of the payoff of beauty of the beast kinds of sorts. Like eh, good, good moral, but, <laughs> uh, so I think that's, uh, you know, pretty present in that one.
1: Uh, and, but I, well with that, like, it also can depend on like which character you focus on. So like you mentioned the princess had the biggest, biggest arc, but, part of that is she honored this commitment of her father without, you know, even before she saw the hedgehog, mm-hmm. she was like, no, you know, you gave your word. I'm going to honor that. And then she meets the hedgehog, marries him. She's you know, not thrilled, but she says, you know, she says, my husband is who he is. Yeah. like I will accept you whether you're human or the hedgehog form. Yes. And I think that's, um, looking at her story of, uh, keeping promises, uh, to the end to the long run for her uh-huh. to keep that uh, is also a message.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, I think you're, you're right on uh, with that. Um, with uh, a story short, that might be the one I'm, I'm struggling a little bit more to like find it, it, it because of that. What almost feels a little bit more improv nature of yeah, the story it itself. Is
1: a lot about that one is much more about tricksters mm-hmm. where storyteller first tricks the cook making stone soup. And then the beggar tricking, uh the cook in the court uh yeah. with his magic which i guess is the only way to describe it <laughs>
0: uh, yeah uh i i don't know that i feel there's a strong like kind of like an aesop's fable moral when we're talking yeah, about it storytelling not, with this
1: um i you know it's just you know the storyteller needed a story in the end and it's kind of like well stories can come from anywhere mm-hmm. if you then play with it, it yeah. like if you're willing to exaggerate something to make it a tall tale or do this or that stories can come from anywhere.
0: Yeah. The soldier in death. It definitely feels like that one has kind of the monkey paw warning of be careful what you wish for (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, uh, aspect of it. The, the simultaneous blessing and curse throughout where it's like, okay, this, this is saving my life uh, in this moment, but then later on it's ruining everything.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, You start with the message of, Oh, if you're kind to others, you will be rewarded because he gets the deck of cards and the bag. As well as a whistling and dancing. It yeah. doesn't come up much, but, you know, he has, so it starts off with that, but then by the end, it's like, well, was he rewarded or, you know, was his choices, like, was it his choices that led to this fate? Um, or is this, you know, is this a just punishment for him?
0: Yeah. Uh, and I, like, with each of these, I, I think it's easy to think of, like, stories that these feel like and that's exactly what it's supposed to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right uh like we when we say what's uh, Hans my hedgehog feel like well it's a little beauty and the beast what's the soldier of death it's a little monkey paw yes <laughs> that's the nature of storytelling that we pick up these pieces and we reshape them and remold them but there's those elements that feel recognizable enough and i think there's a comfort in finding that that familiarity uh, with this and i love this presentation of both these older folk tales uh it, But also just this kind of celebration of storytelling that we get in Japan since the storytelling.
1: And I also want to appreciate them for not picking the obvious fairy tales. You know, the Disney ones that everyone knows. Mm -hmm. They went a little deeper. And, you know, even if it's a variation on Beauty and Beast or something, they chose fairy tales that hadn't been adapted a lot.
0: Yeah. um, And... I mean, I, I wish we'd gotten more of these. Uh, I completely understand why NBC was like, I don't know what to do with this as a network. <laughs> Man, it's like oh. sporadic releases across three years for okay, well, nine you, episodes. Uh,
1: you did not mention this in the trivia, but... um, Boom Studios, the comic book publisher, has done several mini mini-seri- storyteller miniseries built on a theme. So, like, they have one of dragons and one of witches. And so, like, each issue was two or three stories from different artists uh, on that topic. And... They did at least a half dozen of these.
0: Yeah, and Boom uh,
1: has—I think—must have some
0: relationship with the Jim Henson uh, company or you know his his estate because I know they've also done some adaptations of like scripts that he had been working on that never became full projects and Mm -hmm. things like that.
1: Um, Yeah, so you know the storyteller tradition—like it's still—they're still working on it, but just in a different format. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it seems like something that might keep popping up for Jim Henson every few years
0: i mean it feels like this is such a good blend of um timeless storytelling but also figuring out how to tell stories in new and unique ways visually Mm -hmm. and and like just with the technology and and like the the creature shop what what the boundaries that they're pushing and like how uh can we make animatronic puppets that do things that the muppets don't do and you know like uh, how can we push all these this feels like almost like an uh an opportunity for that kind of experimentation that would just be healthy for the entertainment industry to have happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so, like, if a streamer like said, okay, you know, we're, we're doing an anthology and we're dropping like you know five episodes of Jim Henson's Storyteller, each by a different director, uh, you know, each trying to do something different, but also with, uh, you know, adapting existing old stories that maybe aren't as familiar. That just feels like it'd be so rich a vein, uh, for, uh, you know, uh an opportunity, I
1: guess, for for pushing
0: what, what. Media can be, <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and how how it can be done.
1: Well, I, I think I'm I can't remember if I mentioned it on one of the podcast episodes or one of the quick casts, but the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series that was on Netflix, uh, to me felt like, oh, this was what Jim Henson wanted to do. This is like the technology is now there to have to match his vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah, the same thing could happen if someone's willing to invest in it and say, hey uh let's do jim henson storyteller obviously with a new storyteller as both john hurt and michael gammon have passed on michael gammon's passed away right oh, seems like I, yeah he's it's one just, of the celebrities that i would i would guess yes but i wouldn't be surprised if the other way was true too um oh, man, yeah and that. saying all right but yeah put the money into it to say all right we have all the technology now what can you do what can you show us in terms of possibilities
0: Michael Gambon is still with us. It looks like. Okay.
1: (laughs) He's 82 years old. Yeah, it's a. Sometimes when celebrities pass away, it's the case of, "Oh, were they still alive?" (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Um. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Jim Henson's The Storyteller. Is there any final thought that you want to share about it?
1: Um. Well, like I said, you know, well, even if some streamer doesn't want to produce new ones, someone should put this on their streaming service, make Mm -hmm. it more accessible.
0: Yeah. And and it is bizarre enough. I don't know that it would ever find like a huge audience of like. But it would find
1: an audience.
0: Yeah. er, Everyone like talking about it and it dominating the pop culture conversation. I don't think that's the nature of of these, but it would definitely find an audience. And even if you're like you watch something, you're like, "Ah, I don't know if this is for me. Like, just stop and think about the storytelling that's happening and like the the behind the scenes production that's going on to make this exist. And and I think it becomes so fascinating.
1: You know, who would be good for this as kind of the narrator and maybe overseeing it? Neil Gaiman.
0: Yes, (laughs) who has done some stuff with the Jim Henson Company, but also
1: like he has a great storytelling voice
0: yeah and he loves story the, the magic of storytelling for the sake of storytelling
1: <laughs> yeah you know so I, think, and I think that's what you like, need like if you could get him involved well if you could get him involved it would definitely get done <laughs> but mm-hmm. that would also bring a much wider audience
0: Alright, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonists podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music, and also patron Tim, who asked for this episode. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Something's going weird with Google. All right. Not going
1: to touch anything. Fourth time's the (laughs) trip.